I mean, in recent weeks, you, uh, you're well aware that we've considered a wide range of ways that describe and, I, uh, uh, and define our identity as Christians. And, and rightly so. Uh, everything that's been said seems to find its way back to one central matter, and that is this. We are who we are based on being in Christ. We are who we are based on being in Christ. And frankly, that is the line of demarcation. There is a line. It's been drawn across the ages. But that line of demarcation, when it comes to our identity, is are you in Christ or are you not in Christ? Are you in Christ or are you not in Christ? The answer to that question makes all the difference in the world, not just in terms of your identity, but in terms of your destiny. This life is very brief, the Bible tells us. And what we do here prepares us one way or another for what happens after we die. The fundamental questions that human beings have wrestled with from Genesis to today and will be asking into the future, who am I? What is my identity? Why am I here? What is the purpose for my existence? What happens to me when I die? These are questions that pertain to our identity, to our role, to our significance, and again, to our destiny. And all of these questions have been in some way, shape, or form addressed during the series of messages that we have heard in recent weeks. But this morning, I would like for us to just expand that notion of identity, expand our perspective just a bit, and explore another aspect, another aspect of our identity that bears directly upon us being in Christ and what that means for all of us collectively. We've talked a lot about what it means to be in Christ individually. That's important. But it's just as important to know who we are collectively in Christ. So this morning, I think I'm going to move from asking the question, who am I, to considering the question, who are we? Who are we? How many of you were raised in a uh, faith tradition that perhaps as part of your weekly worship time, it included the uh, recitation of uh, one of the Christian creeds? Huh? I can't raise my hand to that. Maybe it was the Nicene Creed or maybe it was the Apostles' Creed. Not quite sure. It depends on the church that you went to. Uh, but that was decidedly not my experience in growing up in church. Frankly, I probably had heard that there were such things as creeds, but that was never, never part of our worship, never really even part of our formal teaching and training in Sunday school. But if you were raised in that, how many of you think you could probably do a pretty good job reciting it today? Eh, I'd probably, I might get most of it, 
but some of you would probably get all of it. Why? Because it's important. That was one of the, one of the things that trained us in the Christian faith. And those creeds, they cover a lot of territory, don't they? Man, I mean, from, from beginning to end, there's something important. And again, while each aspect is important, you know what I have found is that most of the time, most Christians, whether they are part of a creedal uh, assembly or, or church or not, they tend to focus on the big stuff. Okay? We talk a lot about God. We talk a lot about Jesus Christ. We talk a lot about uh, the Holy Spirit. We especially talk a lot about the Holy Spirit in the Pentecostal tradition, don't we? The Apostles' Creed was one that I learned much, much, much later in life. Matter of fact, I used it as a template to teach students what Christians believe. Now, there's a whole lot more that can be said about each component of the Apostles' Creed, and we did talk about all of that. But the main tenets of that faith are true, and I have found that they're very helpful, nice, nice little compact summary statements of what Christians believe, what the church believes, and what the church has always believed. By the way, if you were not able to fully affirm the various aspects of the creeds, you could not be part of the church in the early days. You could not be baptized unless you affirmed, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth or maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the place of the dead. And he rose again on the third day. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He is coming again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. I believe in the communion of saints. Is this all familiar to you? Huh? The forgiveness of sins. The resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Amen. Well, that's how they say it down south. Up north is amen, right? That's for the sophisticated people. Huh? How many of you remember that? Two lines in particular that we're going to focus on today that usually tend to get lost because we focus lots of our attention on God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And there's a whole lot more said about, especially the Son. Isn't that interesting? There's one line that says, I believe in the Holy Spirit. And we move on. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, or the Nicene Creed puts it this way, I believe in the one holy and apostolic church. So what is the church? If we are to believe in it, what's it all about? 
Again, the doctrines of the Trinity, the person of Jesus Christ, the atonement, and even the Holy Spirit are big players on our theological team, aren't they? While the doctrine of the church often gets left on the sidelines. Again, what are we referring to when we use the term church? A writer by the name of Nick Perrin, he, he commented that for many people, the church is little more than the weekly meeting of Jesus' Facebook friends. And by the way, if you ever post something that says, if you love Jesus, you will share this with other people, please be guaranteed, I won't share that with a single other person. <laughs> Whether Jesus loves me or not is not dependent on what I post or share on Facebook. It's who am I? Do I belong to the church? For some, it's just a gathering of religious consumers that just happen to have a common interest, much like a group of people, they, they form a line outside the Apple store when the new iPhone comes out. Hmm? Or all of you have, you, have you had to wait for a connecting flight in an airport? Woo-hoo. <laughs> Everybody in that little gate area is going where you are going. You have something in common with them. But that's all there is to it. There's not really any interaction. Sometimes it's easy for us to view the church as just a convenient location to have my own spiritual needs satisfied. Church can become the place where I go to get my God fix for the week, a place where I can get some encouragement from my favorite preacher. Somewhere I can attend to enjoy the worship music that I find uplifting. A convenient place where I can meet up with my Christian friends. The church can be seen as a provider that exists primarily for my spiritual satisfaction and my religious pleasure. Y'all got real quiet there. Church can become very me-centered. Even while we extol and lift up the name of Jesus in songs, have you ever thought, why am I doing it? Is it for me or is it for us? Whatever we can call a church that is focused on me, it is certainly not the church as Christians have ordinarily and historically understood it to be. It is not a local religious franchise whose mission statement is to meet my spiritual needs. The church isn't a business. We don't come here on Sunday morning to get our little snack-sized portion of religion just because we need a little bit of transcendence in our life during the week. If that's all the church is, we're not living up to what God says the church is and should be. So how would we define the church? If it's not these things, what is it? Here's how I would describe and define. 
The church is the visible gathering of the faithful for the representation of Jesus Christ's presence in the world. The church is the visible gathering of the faithful for the representation of Jesus Christ's presence to the world. If that's accurate, and I think it's pretty accurate, it might be improved upon, but it tells us a number of things. And it rules a few things out. First of all, the church, as Pastor Harris has already mentioned, is the people. It's not the building. The church is not the pews, it's not the pulpits, and it's not the programs. Our sister shared the word ecclesia this morning. The church is the gathering. It is the people. It's not the place that we meet, and it's not the things that we do. The church is who we are. So when we meet together, you know what we're really doing? We are recognizing each other as part of God's family of called out, baptized, sanctified, holy, spirit-filled lovers of Jesus Christ. When you look around and you see that face, you're seeing a brother and sister in Christ. You are seeing part of you and part of us collectively. When we as believers meet together, we become something together that we could never become on our own. There is no church of me There's only a church of we. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 27, Paul puts it this way. All of you together are Christ's body. And each of you is a part of it. All of you together are Christ's body. And each of you is a part of it. I like the way one writer put it. His name is Michael Bird. He said, we are Christians only if we are churchians. (laughs) We are Christians only if we are churchians. What he is saying is that a churchless Christianity is as much a contradiction of Christ without a body. The fact is, You and I need church, and we cannot fully understand our identity apart from being part of the corporate body of Christ. Our identity, individually and corporately, is bound up with the church as the living body of Christ on earth. Wonderful news. We are the body of Christ, but guess what comes with being the body of Christ? A whole lot of responsibility. As I see it, the doctrine of the church, perhaps we've not treated it the way that we should or with the importance that we should. Maybe we've looked at it sort of like a side salad to our theological and biblical main course. 
You can take it or you can leave it. But guess what? From the very start, God has been calling to people and creating a bride for his son. Even in Isaiah, he says in, in chapter 61, verse 10, look around you and see, for all your children will come back to you. This is a prophecy to the children of Israel. As surely as I live, says the Lord, they will be like jewels or bridal ornaments for you to display. The same thing is reiterated in Revelation chapter 19, verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice. Let us give honor to him, to the Lamb. For the time has come for the wedding feast of the Lamb, and his bride has prepared herself. Any Old Testament buffs in here? You just love pouring through the Old Testament, especially like Leviticus and Numbers. Uh, yeah, I knew I'd get at least one hand raised, our worship leader. Huh? You want to know why people flame out on their, I'm going to read the Bible through a year plans in about February? You know who you are. But if you've read through the Old Testament, you know that the story of Israel is one of redemption and judgment and renewal within God's plan to create a worldwide family to worship him. Jesus laid down his life. He shed his blood, not merely to make my individual salvation possible, but to actively save his church. So important is the church that Paul was constrained to write to the leaders of the church of Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, verse 28. So guard yourselves and God's people. Feed and shepherd God's flock, his church, purchased with his own blood, over which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as leaders. The church is the major player in God's plan to set the world right again and to ultimately establish his sovereign reign over all tribes nations, and tongues. So in a small sort of microcosm, when we gather, we are sort of scripted by the scriptures. Under the direction and moving of the Holy Spirit, we build upon the traditions that have brought us to this place in order that we collectively can be built up in Christ. We are here to worship God in spirit and truth and in doing so to be built up into the people of God. Not just this individual person of God. That comes along with us all being built up together. You get dragged right along with us if you're in the body of Christ. As his body flourishes and makes Advances in this world, all of us are along for the ride.
we go to church to prepare ourselves individually and collectively to function in this world as the church. We gather in this building as a group and as a body of believers, knowing that there are lots of bodies of believers elsewhere around this world, even in our own city. Did you know that there are other people that are lifting up the name of Jesus this morning? Did you know that there are people who are getting saved in other churches this morning? Did you know that there are other people being filled with the baptism of the Holy Spirit elsewhere today? Did you know that there are people who are being set free from sin and bondage? Did you know that? Amen. Amen. I'm grateful when it happens here too. But I realize that what happens here is just a small picture of what God is doing elsewhere. To understand the church, first and foremost, we need to remind ourselves that the one true God has one plan for one people. God only has one people. Period. When we talk about the church as the people of God, we're referring to an all sorts of images across both the Old and New Testament that denote a community of believers. Maybe you've heard words like the elect or God's flock, or that we're a kingdom of priests, or a remnant. This is the people with whom God has made covenant. Deuteronomy 7 puts it this way, for you are a holy people who belong to the Lord your God. Of all the people on earth, the Lord God has chosen you to be his own special treasure. And what was true to Israel is true of us today. This one people lives under the one covenant of grace from Eden to today. And by the way, it'll continue into the future. Maybe we could say from Eden to the new Jerusalem. In that new covenant, and we're going to talk about and share about that new covenant when we conclude today. Israel is expanded just from some small ethnic group into a fellowship of people that came from all different backgrounds and nationalities and races. Israel wasn't replaced by the Gentiles. The Gentiles were just added to them. How many Gentiles here are glad for that? Huh? I am one. And you are too. The biblical image of the church is one people under God, part of the story of God's plan to repossess this world for himself. And that together we live in union with Jesus Christ and with one another and that we are nourished by the Holy Spirit and that we, as a result of all of that, are projecting the salvation that God offers to all. How do you know that you're part of the church? Well, the creed kind of gives us a little bit of a hint, or the creeds do. I believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. 
Just as every one of your families, uh, there are certain telltale signs of people that belong to your family. There are, right? You look like them, for good or ill, you look like them. Kids that look like their parents, maybe they might have the same hair color or eye color, or maybe they talk in a certain way. Maybe they follow a particular sports team. Go Packers and Vikings, right? I did that only for the benefit of two of my good friends here at the church. I honestly don't care about either of those teams. And perhaps they share certain habits. You remember that old, there was an old TV commercial, I think it was about the dangers of smoking, and I had a little boy walking along with his dad, and everything that his dad did, he did. He picked up a rock and skimmed it across the pond. He picked up a stick and he started using it as a walking stick, whatever it all was. And then they sat down behind a tree and dad pulled out a pack of cigarettes and lighted up and it showed the little boy picking up. Hmm? That tends to happen in families. We pick up good and bad habits of the people that were around there are certain characteristics that define our families. There are lots of characteristics that define the church. Define all churches. Features that show that there's a family resemblance between us and Christians around the world. We are part of Jesus' family, the church. Four adjectives. One, holy, Catholic, apostolic. Those have traditionally been known as the marks of the church by which we can know that we have the true church. This oneness notion, it derives from God's electing purposes by which he calls one people to be his treasured possession. He calls individuals to make up that one people, but it is God who brings us together and forms us into one. In the Old Testament, he brought a people into being. He said, Abraham, get out of this land, or at the time his name was Abram, Get out of this land and go to a land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And the Old Testament story is the bumps and bruises and the smooth places of that story as it unfolds. And that story continues on in the story of the church. The church has one head that's Jesus Christ. And the church has one body, and that's you and us collectively. Unity is important to God. Threw out the word Trinity a little bit 
earlier, technically what that is, is tri-unity. It is unity in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is unity. Even Jesus affirmed that. I, I do what the Father tells me to do. There's unity of purpose. There should be unity in the body of Christ among those who profess faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus prayed that his followers would be one, just as the Father and Son are one. He said in John chapter 17, I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe that you sent me. Guess what happens, friends? If there is not unity in the church, we lessen our effectiveness of bringing people to seeing that God sent Jesus to save us. For Paul, the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace is something to be earnestly pursued. Again, in Ephesians chapter 4, he says, For there is one body and one spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all, in all, and living through all. Did you get the idea of oneness there? Sadly, we don't see oneness in unity, do we? We see lots of divisions in the church. Outsiders have commented, why are there so many different denominations? Some of which, sadly, believe they're the only ones. They're the one true church. And all other people who name the name of Jesus Christ are something deficient in their faith such that they're not. And if you don't belong to their group, your chances of heaven are pretty slim. It's kind of sad when those sorts of divisions can tear us apart. But can I just tell you it has been so since the very beginning? Since the very inception of the church, there were problems. There were differences of opinion. Acts chapter 15 tells the story of the Jerusalem council and how they had to deal with people who said, well, these Gentiles should be able to, to come and be part of our fellowship. You go, well, yeah, but they're eating meat sacrificed to idols. And that can't happen. And so James and the rest of the leadership had to come to a compromise. Paul later had to separate from his good friend Barnabas because they had a disagreement over whether Mark should have been taken along on the trip or not. In Galatians, talks a lot about the division in the church as these Judaizers were creating factions in the church. And the whole book of Philemon in the, old, in, excuse me, in the New Testament is simply the story of Paul trying to encourage two co colleagues to reconcile. Even the best of saints don't always get along and agree even on important matters. So diversity in the church has been an ever-present reality. But guess what? 
Diversity isn't all that bad. God's not developing a clone army. He's developing a bride. There are some riches in the body of Christ from people of other faith traditions and practices. Sometimes other traditions can help us see our own blind spots. We can become so locked in on what we believe that we miss some of those riches. The Baptists, they remind us, by the way, anybody ever grow up in a Baptist church? God bless you. <laughs> and I mean that sincerely. Because if anybody stands up for the truth and the inerrancy of the Bible, it's the Baptists. If there's any group that insists that the church is for believers, it's the Baptists. We have much to thank them for. Pastor has already shared uh, uh, his church roots. He grew up in the Methodist church. We have some things we can learn from the Methodist movement, not necessarily the Methodist church of today. I've learned a lot about holiness and personal piety from people like John Wesley. And by the way, the Methodist movement in its early days provided the foundation for Pentecostals today. We would not even be here today were it not for those early Methodists. The Presbyterians, they remind us of God's sovereignty. They're strong on that. There is a sovereign God, and his plan will prevail in the end. Pentecostals, hey, we made the list. <laughs> they remind us that God's spirit is still with us and not on vacation. Those who embrace this notion called deism, they believe that, that uh, God exists, but it doesn't have anything to do with his creation anymore. Some people have the same view about the Holy Spirit. Yeah, he's important, he's great on the day of Pentecost, and then he went on eternal vacation. <laughs> we need to learn from each other and embrace the oneness that is the true church. Make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. And Paul is speaking to the whole church. The second mark is holiness. That doesn't mean that the church is entirely free from sin. You visited enough churches to know that that's far from reality. The holiness that marks out the church is both a gift from God but a, also an urgent command and task that God has given to us. Holiness is bestowed upon us simply by virtue of God's consecration of the church as his treasured possessions. We are holy because Jesus declares us holy. 
But secondly, God also calls his people to live in holiness before him. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. God has united you with Christ Jesus. For our benefit, God made him to be wisdom itself. Christ made us right with God. He made us pure and holy and to be free, and he freed us from sin. That's God's work. But on the other hand, Christians are to pursue holiness. Why? Because God is holy. 1 Peter chapter 1, so prepare your minds for action and exercise self-control. Put all your hope in the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. So you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then. But now you must be holy in everything you do, God, just as God chose you. The God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say, you must be holy because I am holy. This reverts back to Leviticus 19. I, the Lord, your, you must be holy because I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Notice there's this individual perspective of identity and a collective. Holiness that Paul refers to is both a position that we have in Christ and also a calling that is to be appropriately lived out. Holiness, I would submit to you, is the central mission of the church. If we are going to make a difference in this world, we need to be different. And at the core of that difference is holiness. Third, the church is Catholic. Now, don't get nervous. Okay. We're not referring to the Roman Catholic Church. Catholic simply means universal. That's all the word means. So in the technical sense, the church is the universal church. There is a universal church. One thing that was very interesting about the early church is they considered themselves to be part of a worldwide movement. A network of assemblies gathering here and there all throughout Palestine and Syria and Asia Minor and Greece and Italy. There were churches, outposts, if you will. But they all saw themselves as part of something bigger. Again, in 1 Corinthians 1, just as he, Jesus, did for all people everywhere who call on the name of the Lord, the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Jesus is not just my Lord. He's not just our Lord. He's everybody's Lord who calls on his name. There's one Lord and one body. One Lord, one body. One Lord and one body period that's what it means to be catholic all believers wherever they are and i would say even whenever they are one of the songs we said today for those who've gone before us and those who will believe 
That's the church. Many of you have dear saints of God that have gone on to be with Jesus without whom you may never have come to faith in Jesus. They're still part of the church. Just as much as you are, just as much as we who are gathering in our churches here, they're still part of the church. And they always will be. We're part of something much bigger than ourselves. We are one in Christ and therefore one with each other. Historically, there has never been any such thing as independent churches in the church. One cannot be independent of other churches any more than one can be independent of Christ. We need to recognize that God is at work, not just in my own life, not just in my own church, but that God is working in other places, in other assemblies, drawing men and women to himself and drawing them together under the banner of Jesus Christ. That work continues around the world even today. The church is to be unified. It's to be holy. It's to be recognized as universal. We're, we're, there's no such thing as the Lone Ranger in the Christian faith. And by the way, even the Lone Ranger had silver and tanto. <laughs> right? The last mark of the church is that it's apostolic. This designates that churches that are faithful to the apostolic message as is contained in the word of God. We know products by the labels and tags that they have to determine whether they're genuine or not. Anybody ever bought a knockoff item? We always laughed and said, oh, I, I got a new Rolex watch for $100. And you look at the back and you look at the face and say, oh, it says Rodex. So, yeah. Looks like it, but it's not the real thing. How do you know it's got the real, that it's the real thing? It's got the right tag on it. It's got the right markings. And... This notion that the church is apostolic is the tag that indicates that we have the one true church. The mark of, a, the, of an authentic church is that it holds to the teachings of the apostles, that it has received those teachings and is passing them along. That's why we send kids to kids ministry, to pass along what we have learned. That's why we gather for Bible studies. Paul did this and mentioned this several times. We'll talk about it in just a minute as we share communion. But he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I passed along to you what was most important. But I passed along to you what had been passed along to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. If we are not apostolic, we are not biblical. If we are not biblical, we are not the church. Don't throw anything. <laughs> the minute we abandon the Bible, the minute it becomes secondary or optional is the minute 
that the Spirit of God begins to leave. Folks, we need the Word of God. The church needs to be apostolic. It needs to embrace the teachings of the apostles. The church is built upon that foundation of the prophets and apostles, and the chief cornerstone is Jesus Christ. That's our foundation. The church is one. Why? Because it lives under one Lord, and it heeds that Lord's commands. The church is holy because it receives God's consecration by the Spirit and then calls its members to be led by the Spirit and to pursue holy Christ-likeness. The church is Catholic. It's universal. Why? Because its borders are wide open and it resists attempts to tribalize it and factionalize it. And the church is apostolic because it orients itself around the message of the apostles and the word of God. The most important aspect is the promotion of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church and the communion of saints. To say that the church is a communion simply means that it is a common union. It's a common union. It exists horizontally among us as Christians. Sometimes we live and we languish here on the earth and, and sometimes we uh, get so bogged down in the things of the world. But sometimes I think if we're reminded that this communion has a vertical element, as we saying, we are connected to those who've gone before us. They are alive today with Christ. Christ's church is alive here. It's alive there. It will be alive forevermore. Why? Because there's one Lord who is preparing that bride. Neither geography nor death itself can fracture the church from this union. The New Testament just assumes that you will get together, that there will be a union, that there will be fellowship, that you will meet for worship and encouragement, that there will be preaching and teaching of the word of God, that there will be submission of what to one another for accountability and discipline, and that there will be sharing in the work of, of a common mission in the church. This is just assumed in the Bible. In other words, there wasn't any real need to push people to do it it was just expected it's still expected today can you imagine a Christian who does not love God's people that too is a contradiction in terms that doesn't mean we love everything that God's people do because frankly some of you all and perhaps myself from time to time do things that make us a jerk But we encourage people and we bring them back. We rebuke and teach and instruct and forgive. Amen. Why? Because Christ forgave us. 
So we should be committed to serving the church, serving this community of believers. To get together when they get together and to hunger for a regular diet of biblical instruction, teaching and preaching. This is the common life of the church. But know this, as I wrap things up this morning. The world of our parents and our grandparents is no more. We might wish it were, but it's not. We have to realize that the world that we live in, especially the Western world, has changed. It's either already or else very quickly becoming decidedly post-Christian and perhaps moving in the direction of being anti-Christian. Back in the 1980s, there was a movement among some evangelical leaders. Some of you are old enough to remember this. It was called the Moral Majority. Anybody remember that? Well, in the eyes of an increasingly secularized culture, the church is now the immoral minority. Why? Because the world finds our views on pretty much everything from the family to religion to human sexuality as utterly offensive. This is the world that we live in. The church used to have a place of respect and prominence in communities, but anymore it's like the enemy of the state. We can long for the way things used to be. But here's what I want to encourage you with today. Maybe, maybe it's possible that we can find even some good in this. Maybe this is our chance to be what Jesus said we were going to be anyway and to be it to an even greater degree, to be the salt of the earth. To be the light of the world, to be a city set on a hill. Maybe this is our chance to shine as the stars. Maybe this is our chance as the Bible said of the early church. And by the way, the culture in which that developed was far worse than ours. The Bible says those early Christians turned the world upside down. Maybe this is our chance. Maybe this is our hour. Because what the church has to offer is not just our architecture, not just our programs, not just our politics, not just our clergy, not even our potlucks. As wonderful as they are. The best thing and really the only thing we have to offer that no one else can is Jesus Christ. And if he is the answer that the world needs and we have that answer, this is our moment 
to shine. This is our moment to boldly proclaim and to change this world. We're a peculiar people. To varying degrees of peculiarity. Some of you are more peculiar than others. But this people, as weird and as strange and as peculiar as it is, it's been called by God to live, to love, to serve, to sing, to preach, to teach that Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord. If we do anything else, we're just another club. Let's be the church. Let's be the church. Brent, if you and the worship team will come. It's only under the umbrella of the wondrous grace of God that I can be the fullest me possible. And I can only be the fullest me possible because we are us in the fullest way possible. Common union as the church built upon and centered around the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is who we are. Period. It's who we are. In short, we can say, this is our identity. Is it in crisis? Only to the extent that you and I allow it to remain in crisis. And don't allow us, don't allow ourselves to be used of God in the way that he wants us. I want, to, I want myself, but I want all of us collectively to represent Jesus the best that we can in this world. If he's lifted up, he'll draw all men to himself. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's not about first open Bible. It's not about open Bible churches. It's not about evangelicals. It's not about main lines. It's not about any of those labels and, and uh, divisions that we have. It's about Jesus Christ. Period. When you came in this morning, I trust that you received... Uh, Communion set, and we're going to share in the Lord's Supper as we're dismissed this morning. So if you'll grab that, you can peel off the bottom part of that, and there's a, a, a nice wafer, a little square thing, really white. How many of you grew up with the uh, styrofoam discs? <laughs> Just melt in your mouth? Huh? Bread, yeah, and some. And you took the bread, tore off a piece, and dipped it in? Yeah. That's called intinction. I never I learned I learned that when I was in my forties. Okay? Just one way of celebrating the Lord's Supper. But we're going to do that today because this is something we do together. There's a reason it's called communion. It's common union. We are rallying around our Lord and Savior and the basic gospel message. Remember earlier when I read uh, from 1 Corinthians 15. In, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul uses a similar phrase. He said, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. 
What we share today has been passed on to us. We didn't invent it. It came from God through the Son, Jesus Christ. Friends, this is one way where we can identify with the church, the full body of Christ, wherever they are, as we share in the supper of that one church's Lord. The Lord Jesus, the Bible reads, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the wafer, hold it high. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning as your church. And just as our Lord Jesus did on the night that he was betrayed, we take this bread and we give you thanks for it. And symbolic of his body which is broken for us and in remembering that, we now, Lord, take and eat this bread in remembrance of our Savior, Jesus. Let's take the bread together. If you peel off the top of your cup, or most of it, to where you can access. In the same manner, Paul goes on to say, he, Jesus, also took the cup after supper, saying, this is the new covenant in my blood. We talked about the new covenant. God is forming for himself a people, a bride, that he intends to present without spot or blemish. And we are members in particular. This cup is the new covenant of my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Father, as we hold this cup in our hands just now, we thank you for your shed blood on the cross for our sins. And this morning, Lord, as we drink, as we have taken this so many times before, we do so in remembrance of you. Bless, it, Lord. Bless us, Lord, as we share in this cup this morning, as we remember you. Let's take the cup this morning together. Paul concludes... For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Before we sing our closing song, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your ministry to each of us today. But Lord, we thank you as well collectively for your ministry to us. We are your church. And now, God, by your grace and by your strength, help us to be unified. Help us to be holy. Help us to recognize our part in the universal family of God. And help us, Lord, to latch on to and defend and preach and teach the apostolic message, the gospel of Jesus Christ, with the lives that we live and the words that we say. May your son be glorified, Lord, 
Bless each one that's here today. Bless those who couldn't join us, but may be joining us online, Lord. Pray, God, that you would meet their needs. But in all things, we pray your son, Jesus, will be glorified in his church. And all God's people said, amen, amen and amen. Would you please stand?